History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? Find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. Hello and welcome to History Happened Everywhere, episode 30. Hooray. My name is Ryan Weir and I am here in the studio with the stupendously sweaty Mr. Peter Goddard. Thank you very much. I like to stand <laughs> out with my stupendous quality of my uh, perspiration. You do, you have a nice sheen across your forehead. Exactly, I'm a Michael Sheen. (laughs) (laughs) Why are you so sweaty, mate? Tell everyone. Uh, Well, because uh, we had to close all the windows to stop the sound coming in, which also stopped the air coming in, it turns out. And it's pretty warm, so here we are, sweating for your entertainment. Yeah, I'm, I'm like sitting in some sweaty pants. I didn't need to know that additional detail, but thanks. <laughs> They're flax pants and they absorb all the moisture a man can emit. <laughs> oh, are you going to burn those afterwards? No, I'm going to sell them. We're, uh, we've we are, got a big we are fan a bit. base now that are keen for my sweaty flax pants. <laughs> do you like an airport schlock thriller? I do. I like uh, definitely Horses for Courses in terms of books. I, oh, I thought that was the name of a book. Oh, yeah, Horses for Courses. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I like a, a, schlocky, a schlocky thriller. Like, but I'm, my real weakness is sci-fi and fantasy. I'm going to name-check a book that I read recently, and that was by Andy Weir, my namesake. Ooh. He wrote another book recently, another sci-fi book, called Hail Mary, and I thought it was great. Okay, well, plug I don't know why we're plugging stuff. I know. Yeah. When's he going to plug our stuff, eh? Us <laughs> weirs have got to stick together. And given this weather, the weirs are going to stick together very easily if we get too close. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm sticking to myself, so that's how I stick together. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, right, so from the heat of this room to the hot topic, which is your episode, let's remind ourselves of what it is that you're going to be telling us about. Let's do it. Let's go back. Okay, I want to hit the button. I'm hitting the button now. Okay, so do you want to know what your country is? I do, I do. Okay, okay. And your country is? Congo. Congo. Specifically, in brackets, Brazzaville. That's curiously specific. Okay. Brazzaville. (laughs) Okay, and your time period is? 1995 to 2000. Ooh, that is uh, something of a relief after last time's (laughs) struggle, so I'm very happy with that indeed. Okay, and your subject? Courage. Courage. Oh, I like that. I love it. Oh, that I'm I'm very excited to find something. So episode 30 is Courage in the late 90s in Congo. Stroke Brazzaville. (laughs) (laughs) So, Congo. Yes, Congo. Which Congo? Well, (laughs) I'm glad you asked that, Ryan, because it was only after several hours of researching a rather interesting outbreak of Ebola in the Democratic Republic of Congo that I discovered that that is a different country to the Republic of Congo. Oh, no. (laughs) It's a pair of Congos. They are a pair of Congos, and you have to watch out for which Congo you might be examining. Oh, man, that's confusing. It's highly confusing. 
they could at least just spell one with a K. They could, because actually, funny you should say that, they are named after Congo, Kingo. the kingdom of the Congo, of oh. Congo, which was spelt with a K. Oh, right. So I don't know how it migrated to a C, but uh, it was originally, the original kingdom that was there was Congo with a K. Yeah. I'm going to blame the Belgians or the Portuguese or the English or the French. Well, it's one of those four. It's Well, they, they all make a, bit, a, a little bit of an appearance, actually. I'm so sure they you're do. you're on uh, safe ground there. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, shall I get us started? We're talking Congo Brazzaville, 1995 to 2000 and courage. So, before we start, why Congo Brazzaville? Brazzaville is the capital of Republic of Congo. Okay. Uh, and that's just in a meet. It's actually called Republic of the Congo. Right. But people say Congo Brazzaville because of this problem with the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which is a different country. So, they, people distinguish them by calling them Congo Brazzaville and Congo Kinshasa for the respective capitals. Right. Okay. So the Brazzaville, is that in parentheses, in brackets? Well, uh, there's, I think there's various versions. I've seen it hyphenated and commoed, and it's it's kind of a tool rather than okay. a formal thing. So I, I, as long as you say Brazzaville, people will orient to the right area. Uh, so just let's orientate where, where we are on the map. Please do. So uh, picture Africa, this bulgy, sticky down continent in the middle yeah. of your map, as normally found. <laughs> So uh, if you trace your way down the left or west coast, you yep. go down past the bulgy bit. And just as the you're going into the sticky down bit, mm-hmm. that's where you're going to find Congo Brazzaville. Oh, OK. It's relatively small, actually. It's about half of France, 342 square kilometers. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you hesitating on that? I'm hesitating because Paul Dursley regularly berates us for getting square kilometers and kilometers squared mixed up. Yeah. So this is half of France. OK, half of France. It's still quite large. Well, yes, except it's next to massively bigger countries. Democratic Republic of Congo is is several times that size. It's much, much bigger. Oh, okay. So for its region, it's relatively small, actually. And it's actually not just relatively small, but also very sparsely populated. Five and a half million people. So France has 67 million people. We've got five and a half million people. Wow. So it's thin on the ground in terms of the population. Is that because, like, geography-wise, it's just mainly forest, or is it just... It's very poorly developed, I think, is one one of the main reasons so okay. it's not a it hasn't benefited from huge amounts of development it suffers a little bit from the resource curse which we won't talk about a lot we've talked about before but they've got timber and oil mm-hmm. they weren't really developed as a nation by the french who were the, the colonists right for the majority of the period so they've been kind of left behind in a lot of ways right so on that note, actually, uh, oh no, let's talk about the flag real quick. It kind of looks a little bit like Christmas wrapping paper to me. If it was divided sort of top right to bottom left corners, yep. you've got green and red with a yellow stripe in the middle. Yeah. Do you want to hear the national anthem? I do. All right, musical break. kind of cool that's called the congolese i believe not unlike the marseillaise in oh, french really is that right i think so yeah cool so uh yeah so that's the the nation i'm not going to go on much longer because we've got a lot of stuff to cover wow okay cool So let's get you started with just the potted history of the whole country so you know how it came to be as it did, as we've just described. So this is an African nation, and as we've seen in previous African nations that we've talked about, it's, uh, it starts out being populated by forest foragers, also known as pygmies, mm-hmm. uh, that get displaced by the Bantu migrations 
uh, of the Bantu tribes people. Yeah. So I think we've seen this in, uh, I think it was the Central African Republic, was yeah, it? Yeah, And also the Rwanda episode, we mm-hmm. saw the same pattern of pygmy forest foragers. Cameroon, I think, as well, had a uh, mention of that during yeah, our Cameroon quite, Christmas. Oh, yes, of course. So, yeah, it's that again. Early man, <laughs> as ever, pops up. And yes, there will be some Portuguese in the near future. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Originally here, there was two main kingdoms, the Congo that gave the place its name and the river its name, in fact, and the Teke. And the Teke was the north and the Congo kingdom was in the south uh, until 1482 when the Europeans arrive, starting with the Portuguese. Correct. Diego Camlands. They do two things. They start converting people to Christianity and selling them as slaves. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's familiar. It is, isn't it? I'm not going to dwell on it, but Portugal basically wanes and the British and the French show up. The British fiddle around a bit, but they don't actually follow it through. They kind of leave the place. So ultimately it becomes a French territory. Okay. 1880 is a key year for these guys. A guy called Pierre Savonion de Braza. Ah, okay. Uh I think you see where this is going. I do, yeah. Uh, He arrives. His name's Pierre, so he's French. Uh, Well, yes, except he's Italian. (laughs) (laughs) Genuinely, he is an Italian guy. Okay, fair enough. Uh, But I believe he becomes naturalized French. uh, He's generally considered adopted by the French. Cool. And so the area becomes a French colony. But Brazza, de Brazza is a very interesting character because he wasn't your traditional colonialist. He was believed in development, free trade. Uh, he arrives at a village called Ntamo, which is the village that becomes Brazzaville ultimately. Right. And he negotiates with the chiefs and he ends with a symbolic act where they dig a large hole and each chief puts something in, a bullet, a flint, a powder flask, something warish. Right. And they throw the earth back in and the chiefs say, we bury war so deep that neither we nor our children will be able to unearth it. Right. So de Brazza has a really developmental view of colonialism he doesn't want to just rape and pillage the land and take what they need and bugger off he wants to help and trade honestly and develop these these areas okay um the big problem was he doesn't make the profits that the neighboring belgian congo they were raking in the cash by being absolutely horrific and so de Brazza gets sacked who, who sacks him? The French government, I suppose. Okay. And more annoyingly, he discovers he's been fired by reading about it in the newspaper. Oh, man. What a way to go, eh? So this brief moment of, hey, I'm going to develop these guys, gets him kicked out. Wow. Hey, Pete, what are you up to? Oh, hey, Ron. I'm just reading the paper. Nice. Anything good? Yeah, yeah. There's this one story about this random podcast, and apparently they've sacked both the presenters. What? What? And they published it in the paper? Man, that's embarrassing. I know, right? So, like, what did they do wrong? Well, it seems that the audience didn't really like them. Their voices were sort of grating, and they were incredibly self-indulgent. In one episode, really, they just got drunk together. What? Like for the whole episode? Yeah. Man, that is so unprofessional. Right? And they just beg desperately every episode for likes and reviews, and they just keep repeating themselves. What? Repeating themselves? Yeah. Re- Repeating themselves. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't catch us repeating ourselves. Exactly. And worse, when one of them was talking, the other one would just finish... What, what they were saying for them. Right. That is so annoying, isn't it? I mean, the only thing worse than that is like Interrupting and talking at the same time. So it's all incomprehensible. Right? right? I know. They really, sound you awful. think there was like a basic standard skill. Completely. Completely. I agree. What, what a pair of clowns. So I'm wondering how Brazza becomes known as Brazzaville if he's gotten rid of. Well, profits go up, but as with the Belgian Congo, you know, word eventually gets out to the West. This is horrific. This isn't development opportunity. It's an Mm. absolute nightmare state. So he gets reappointed to conduct an investigation into the way French Congo is being run. Oh, okay. So he gets, he makes something of a comeback. So he he arrives back in the nation. He's walking around. Everyone's getting in his way, stopping him, making any progress. All of the barriers that you would expect someone who's investigating corruption and murder and kidnapping might might come across. So he's getting ill. 
he's, he's reporting, he's doing everything he can. He sounds like a, just a really good guy. And he gets dysentery, he's dying at this point. Oh, no. And with pretty much his last breath, he sends his report saying, right, this is what I found and it's not good to the French government. Okay. What do they do? They suppress it and carry on as normal. Right. Okay, good. So it was worth all the effort then. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it doesn't end well. They do give him a state burial in France, which is a bit hypocritical considering (laughs) what they did to him. And in fact, his wife agrees. She has him exhumed and the body moved to Algiers. Exhumed from... He gets a state burial in France. So he's buried in France with all the honours. But he died in Africa? Uh, Yeah, I think so. But they repatriate the body. So what's that like back in those days? Unpleasant, I would imagine. Yeah. So by the time that she exhumes the body and repatriates it to Algeria... I would imagine... I don't know how quickly she exhumed him, but uh, I guess they... Took the bones and put them in a box. Yeah, pretty much. A bone box of some kind. (laughs) Imagine. Imagine the situation. So this isn't, ironically, this also isn't his last move, because in 2006, he gets dug up again uh, and moved and buried in a specially built mausoleum in Brazzaville. Oh, they, what, they took him straight back? They so he just did back. like in a 2006, loop. they take him back. Why? Because he's, uh, he's well-respected in some ways. He's quite controversial, obviously. He's still a colonialist. Sure. But, but he is the sort of more most acceptable face of colonialism I've kind of come across well, so far. I mean, we talk about this a lot, but I do find it peculiar. People are dead, just let it be. I know, like, yeah, I know you don't like a, this, do Put a plaque up just on the wall. A bench or something. Or a bench or something. <laughs> just let, let it stop digging these bones up and moving them around. I don't know why it's so important where somebody is buried. Well, I think it's, it's a power move, isn't it? This is part of legitimising yourself and going, oh, look, we've honoured... If I, the current government, have interred the remains of this respected individual from the past, I am more or less saying I'm I'm like this guy, I'm, I'm associated with him, and his qualities are my qualities, uh, which for a very authoritarian regime is potentially a good thing. Okay. Uh, and so obviously Brazza has given his name to Brazzaville. Apparently that's the only colonial capital in Africa to actually retain its name. <laughs> no Everywhere way, else really. in independence time, they're like, well, we're independent now, we're going to rename. They didn't. And all because he was considered a reasonably decent colonizer as far as that is possible. I mean, obviously wow. there are people who say, yes, but a good colonizer is still a colonizer. And ultimately, right. uh, I guess we'll never know because it wasn't. he wasn't given a chance for his approach to that to bear fruit. But, you know, still a colonizer, I guess. So there's, there's two sides to that to consider yeah so again the pattern we've seen in africa after world war ii the desire for independence more activity supporting independence expands and 1960 it becomes independent it's a bit unstable a couple of years later there's a a popular uprising and then another seven years later there's a coup so in 1970 the nation becomes a marxist state the people's republic of the congo Wow, okay. So now, 1979, uh, another nine years later, there's an, the arrival of a very key person, a guy called Denis Sassou Nguesso. Right. Uh, he's appointed the president in 1979. He's still running it as a Marxist nation until 1990, where they go, oh, you know, the Soviet Union's on its way out. This isn't really working. We're going to have a more market-led approach. And they rename themselves again to Republic of the Congo. Okay. 1992, they have democratic elections. Sasu Ngeso concedes, and there's a new president, a guy called Pascal Lisuba. Pascal Lisuba. So things aren't really settled. There's violence around the elections. It's not nearly as stable as you would like. And then we're getting into our period, because we're 1995 to 2000. 1997 to 99, Republic of the Congo Civil War. So I'm going to tell you about that in detail, because that's my time period a little bit later, but we're just scampering through the whistle-stop history at the moment. Indeed. So 2002, there's another election. Sasu Ngeso wins the election. 90% of the vote. 
90 percent yeah that's because he's a good campaigner he's got a solid platform uh, and no real opponents his main rivals were not allowed to compete yeah you see that's how do you get 90 percent you uh, it's not a characteristic of well-run honest democratic elections is it 90 percent victories no but if you've got no one running against you how are you getting 90 percent and not 100 well there were uh, there were rivals uh one guy called andre milongo but he withdrew from the race actually but there were i guess some draw man people because okay. otherwise it's the appearance of election rather than the reality yeah. So uh, 2009, another election. Sasu wins again. Uh, <laughs> the election was marked by very low turnout and fraud and irregularities. Mm. There's a limit to how many times you can be president in the new democracy. So um, they amend the constitution to allow Sasu to have another go in the 2016 president, presidential election. Politics. Uh, eh? I guess That's who won? Great. Oh, care to well, police a <laughs> Wow, amazing. Uh, and the current president of the Democratic Republic of... Oh, sorry, of the Republic of the Congo is... Denis Sassou Nguesso. So, do you remember I started? 1979 he became president? Yeah. Today is still the president. Today is in 2021 he yes. is still president. Yeah. How many years is that? 41. Yeah, and there's a little break in between, but pretty much most of the time he's been president. My goodness. So don't expect a lot of progress, change or reform is my, my prediction here. Yeah. Okay. How is he, how is he thought of amongst the people? They don't speak loudly about him generally, I think, is the, okay. the long, the short of it. Well, it, it's an authoritarian regime. Okay. He's not beloved by all, put it that way. And how does the country fit into the broader political picture within Africa and potentially in, internationally? Well, the, the, the Congo Civil War is quite illustrative of that, actually. So if we, if we dive into that, okay, okay. I think that will answer that question. Mm-hmm. So our period is 1995 to 1000, which 2000, which for me, lucky coincidence, was uh, the period of the the second, really, Congo Civil War. So to recap, Denis Sassou Nguesso was the president from 1977 to 92, and in 92, there was an election. And in that election, there were three candidates, main candidates, Sassou Nguesso, this mm-hmm. is a male guy, Lisuba, who we mentioned before, and a guy called Bernard Kalelas. But the problem was that they weren't just politicians, because they all had their own militia. Each had their own? Each had their own. What constitutes a militia? Men with guns who aren't your army officially. Yeah, how many? Like two? Thousands, certainly thousands in these cases. Okay, wow. So Lesuba had a group called the Kokoyas and Kalelas had a group called the Ninjas. The Ninjas. So the Cobras, the Kokoyas and the Ninjas were the militia for each of these three people and they kind of control areas okay. of the country with their militia. So Lesuba wins the election, but he wins but not with a very clear majority, so he dissolves parliament. The other guys in the parliament say, well, that's not constitutional. So lo and behold, on the streets, you start finding ninjas, cobras and kokoyas with their guns running around. Do we know what kokoyas means? I do not know. Internet woman, can you tell us what kokoyas means? Kokoyas. Kokoyas means. Thank you. Hello. This is the voice of the internet. Kokoye is of Nigerian origin and means helper. The kokoye militia are also sometimes referred to as Sulus or Mamba. Thank you. Oh, there you go. Right. That's interesting. So 1993, that election is descent into civil war, the first civil war. At the end of the civil war, Lesuba is still in power just about, but really it's distributed around these three factions and their militias. So it's a bit of a tense situation, which is why in 1997, it's all going to kick off again. Are you forced to join a militia? The long and the short of it is, it's the same as a gang in a London borough. If you're in a borough in a community and your community has a gang, you're probably not going to join the gang of the two boroughs over. You're going to join your borough's gang. And 
if you're in the right socioeconomic group, you're going to join the gang because it's what everyone you know does. Plus, and there's a chance of making some money in it. Exactly. And, and there's patronage okay. and someone will say, yeah, we're going to we're going to fight. Plus for territory right and you're sort of brought up, uh, indoctrinated to believe that your area is the best. And Absolutely. And we're going to learn some very specific things about okay. why young people might join militia in uh, in a little bit. Cool. So, right, 1997, Sasu Ngeso takes his election campaign, because it's an election year. They get him to carry him through the, uh, an opponent's town in a traditional chief's chair. Oh, cool. Which apparently is a really deliberate insult to the powers that be. Oh, uh, And a gunfight breaks out, basically. Uh, Lisuba, who is nominally in charge at this time, thinks this is the start of an attempted coup, which it kind of might well have been. Uh, and he decides to try and disarm the cobras. Okay. So his Kokoye militia go to Sasu's Brazzaville resident uh, to arrest and disarm the Cobras. They don't want to be disarmed, so fighting breaks out. So Lesuba joins forces with the other guy, Kalelas, so the ninjas, basically. So now the ninjas and the Kokoyas are fighting against the Cobras. Right. If you keep all your, all your militia straight. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I've got this. But it's not quite just the ninjas, because you've asked about neighbouring countries. Well, not just neighbouring countries, but other countries. But one of the neighbouring countries is Angola. Okay. And Angola basically supplied troops and kit to uh, Sasu and Geso. So it wasn't just ninjas and Kokoyas versus cobras. It was ninjas and Kokoyas versus cobras and the Angolan army. <laughs> right, wow. Rather trickier. Well, they, even that wasn't Got a little bad. Game of Thrones going on here. Yeah, it's very much so, because there was... Uh, Lesuba himself was trying to get the Democratic Republic of Congo to support him as well. But obviously, I guess he didn't succeed as well as Sasu did. Sasu is popular with the French oil people, which is also really important. He is apparently very corrupt, as is the French oil in that area. The company called Elf. Mm. Basically, did you say apparently because you don't want to be sued? Basically, yeah. <laughs> or shot in this case. <laughs> Fair enough. So, a company allegedly. called Elf. Yeah, allegedly, this company called Elf does definitely control all of the oil in this region. It is very lucrative, and they like Sasu because he's very much one of their people. Okay. Uh, so that's a lot of money that's going his way as well. So he's well supported. And then the Angolan troops with their planes and the helicopter gunships work out pretty well against ninja fighters with shotguns. It's funny that some a negative story would come out of oil. You know, I know. I mean, normally it just leads to such prosperity for a nation, doesn't <laughs> it? <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? There's that sort of classic trope of somebody digging and finding oil and going, yay, I've got oil. And actually, when you look at it on a national scale, especially in Africa, it's like, oh my God, there's trouble ahead here. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so basically, with the help of the Angolans and a lot of French oil money, by 1999, the, the ninjas and the Kokoyos surrender. Oh, and, okay. Uh, Sasu and Gesso wins, and he's been in power ever since. Right. So wow. that is the, the civil war. So the legacy of this is whole areas are decimated. There was wholesale looting because most of these armies weren't even being paid. So they just stripped what they could from anywhere they could take it. Down to roofs. You've got corrugated metal roof. Metal has value. You've lost your roof because the, the invading armies or the militias have stolen your roof. Do they join the Cobras? Well... Sasu and Gesu is in, in control, and there's not a lot of doubt about that. Yeah. But there are regions where, to, even now, they're basically controlled by local militia. So the, the ninjas control an area called the Pool, which is around Brazzaville. So there are, there are still factionally led areas. Militias are still there, but they're not necessarily actively fighting, but they're definitely still part of life. Right, okay. Right, so the ninjas still exist as a... Th the ninjas very much still exist, uh, and we're about to meet them, in fact. Okay. So our topic is courage. 
Yeah. And one of the things I, I found to research this topic was a book called Brazzaville Charms, Magic and Rebellion in the Republic of the Congo. Right. This is a book by someone called Cassie Knight, who has worked in Brazzaville herself just after the Civil War. And uh, she was fascinated by the place. And she wrote this very interesting, very readable book. So our first dive into courage, which yep. is my topic, is, is her courage. Because she just traveled and got a job in Congo Brazzaville, which I don't know about you, but I go to a new job and I'm kind of nervous because I don't know where the Pret is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the thought of starting uh, in a new country is really, really scary. But um, a country that's been at war and continues to have an undercurrent of violence. Absolutely. So here's the thing. I managed to have a conversation with Cassie. Oh, nice. Uh, and I asked her, what was it like to yeah. start a new job in this, this place that's so unfamiliar? And this is what she told me. There's a bit of me that just loves that feeling of entering into the unknown. And I remember very well arriving at the airport. A French colleague met me. I felt terrible because my French wasn't really good enough to communicate. And I, I should have had good enough French to work in French. And we went back to the guest house where everyone was staying. And it was a guest house run by French priests. So, well, a congregation of Catholic priests, because that was kind of one of the institutions that remained unscathed during the war. And yeah, I had this, had a dinner sitting around with other guests and I just, you know, was wide eyed and lapping it all up. And then, <laughs> I mean, I just loved the fact you could walk to work the next day through these beautiful avenues and the tropical plants were amazing. And then I met my colleague and it was Placide and immediately he had a great laugh and chuckled at my crap joke and it just got off to a good start. Like it couldn't have been better given how very foreign it was to me. I loved it from then on. Wow, uh, that is a <laughs> baptism by fire, Seriously, isn't it? Seriously, isn't it? That's a just imagine that sense of. I mean, she said she loves it, but the sense gives me the chills to think about going to a totally new country like that and then yeah. having dinner with all these people and oh, kicks my anxiety off big time. Yeah, this is this is how movies begin. It's absolutely, and uh, so so she does indeed travel around uh, the Congo as part of preparing to write this book that she wrote, Brazzaville Charms. Yep, uh, and which also would make a great serial, by the way. Oh, for sure. Uh, but she finds herself in the hometown of a ninja faction. So you asked uh, what happened after the war. Yep. Well, in this instance, the, she went to a place that was controlled by ninjas. I mean, you're saying that with a straight face, but you know how silly that sounds, right? I know. It sounds, well, also cobras and ninjas. It's all a bit yeah. uh, action man, isn't it? But it's, it's very real. Karate thing. kid, I'm thinking. Cobra Kai. And... <laughs> well, yeah, I guess uh, if you're going to call your militia something, it's going to be something scary and cool, I guess. Yeah. But, uh, Anyway, she travels to one of these areas. It's controlled by the ninjas. And I asked her what that experience was like. Okay. There were ninjas in the marketplace, very visible militia groups still moving around controlling areas. And even with a military base in one of the towns we visited, the ninjas effectively controlled all the movement and actual living space in the same town. And they were moving around unarmed. That was the agreement. But I'm absolutely sure they had their arms not very far away. So if there'd been anything that kind of lit a match and restarted things, that, that it would have been very quick to conflagrate. So, Whoa. I know, right? It's uh, Then it starts to get real, doesn't it? You go, okay. oh, that's all quite funny. And then you go, oh, imagine being in this place where these guys, you know that they've probably got an AK-47 stashed at home. Uh, I mean, I don't know why I'm assuming this, but I assume she's Caucasian and therefore standing out? Uh, yes, very much so. There is a question mark over whether that affords you a degree of protection as well. Though. You know, Would people dare to hurt you if you are someone of that distinct value, I suppose? I'm not going to take that risk. I would not also take, take that risk, but I did... <laughs> 
a chuckle when she said the ninjas were very visible and I couldn't help but think that's not what terrible they're supposed ninjas. to do. <laughs> <laughs> they should be running across rooftops with exactly. light, light foot. If you can see them, they haven't ninjaed correctly in my view. But uh, again, am I going to be the one to tell them? No, sir, I am not. No. So you did also ask who joins a militia? Why would you do that? And I asked her the same question. Huh, so nice. Let's see what she says. Okay. They were local people, mostly quite uh, young. So anything from young teenagers up through to people in their 20s. But they had joined because of the lack of prospects in any other avenue of work. I mean, agriculture is basically it. It's working the land for a subsistence living with very little hope of anything else because the pool area is seen to be the opposition area by the Sassoon Gesu. So they are not welcome in terms of jobs and um, university places and anything else. Like the, the, the way is blocked. And then they had a very charismatic leader who brought a lot of passion to the debate and also quite a lot of mystical promises of protection and salvation. And, and that was the combination that got a lot of young people to join, or a lot of people in general. But I think in particular, it was a young movement. I mean, it's such a common story, isn't it? You, you can, I mean, the, the trappings change, but the story is the same time and time again, isn't it? Lack yeah. of options, somebody charismatic in your area telling you that they're going to look after you. Uh, you could port that into pretty much any country on earth in various ways and find a very similar outcome. Absolutely, you could. Yeah, wherever you are in the world, that's a story that is familiar. And so, again, I'm going to bring us back to courage for a moment. These kids, I mean, she said young teens. We're talking 14, 15. We're not talking 18-year-olds. We're mm. talking children, essentially. They find their courage from this charismatic leader that Cassie mentioned. Uh, this isn't Kalelis. This is actually a guy called Pastor Ntumi. And he is their kind of the spiritual leader, I guess, as well as their just regular leader. Uh, but anyway, I asked her about this leader and how he affects these, these kids. It's a belief system as well as a militia. So he is really believed to have magical spiritual powers. He's He says he's the Messiah born again. So he's playing on both the kind of history of the independence rebellion and Matsua's uh, role in that as a kind of independence figure of rebellion. Um, and Matsua himself had spiritual overtones. And, and this isn't in the past past, right? This is 95 to 2000. It's still, still there, even now. The it, it did not introduce an, an age of reason here particularly. So this uh, pastor and Toomey literally is thought to be magical, have magical powers. So on the subject of courage, he uses his magical powers to give his people courage, essentially, in fighting. So there are secret rituals. They cut their wrists and rub special powder on before fighting. So, so he's a magical ninja. He's a magical ninja to the extent that these children are so convinced of the magical powers of protection this guy has that some of them are sent to the front lines armed with saucepan lids to bang together to scare the enemy because they have no means to defend themselves, but they don't need it because this magical power is going to protect them. Right. They do, however, lose all of the war, the wars that I can see. But uh, this guy, it's still... Wait, wait, you're telling me the people with cooking pans, lids, they lose wars? Against the guy with the helicopter gunships from Angola, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Who'd have predicted it? But um, there was a name mentioned there that uh, I hadn't introduced, which is a guy called Matsua. Okay. So the, this guy is he's the second coming. He's a spiritual guy. He thinks he can communicate with this historic figure. He's a guy called Andre Matsua. He's a 1920s opponent of French injustice. And he basically was uh, sort of Malcolm X of 1920s Congo. He died in prison in 1942. The French buried his body at night to avoid protests and trouble. But it kind of backfired because there was no body. People believed he'd escaped. Right. And now he's this semi-mythical figure almost <laughs> yeah. who is going to come back and save everybody. 
And so this this spiritual tradition has been hooked into by Pastor Ntumi, who says, yeah, I'm communicating with this guy. And he's sort of associating, again, like we discussed, associating yourself with someone else to take their value. This this hero of the of resistance to the French, he's like, oh, yeah, no, I'm this guy too, effectively. So they co-opt these people in an effort to retain your power. I mean, it, it, whilst it might be stupid to take a, a saucepan to a gunfight, <laughs> not even a knife, a saucepan lid to a, to a gunfight, you know, it does require courage. So uh, and what I'm trying to do is investigate different types of courage here. You've got social mm. courage to go to a new place. You've got courage born of belief, of faith based courage to do things which are inherently risky but actually you don't fear them because you think you are protected but this courage obviously has terrible negative consequences in that the the civil war really ruined the republic of congo but obviously war also brings tales of everyday human courage and inspiration so another type of courage that i decided to look at is uh, the courage to just carry on the courage to live in these kind of circumstances and condition yeah so basically during the 97 98 war the the phrase that was used in the book is congo's warring factions hammered each other with artillery in the capital helicopter gunships pound the city journalists describe the scene as looking like an apocalypse fighting everywhere but people still lived there Right? Mm-hmm. So the, and one of these people was somebody called Sister Marie Therese. She lived in Brazzaville and she lived not just in Brazzaville, but she lived in the bit between the ninjas and the cobras. So she lived basically where everyone was shooting at each other. D- deliberately so? Uh, no, that was, was just this, where she, she just found herself in the middle She was there and that's where it, okay. where it all kind of centralised, I guess. So she lived with 10 children. So what she does is she adopts children and looks after them because she's a nice nun. And they live, like I say, in this extremely dangerous zone between the two sides. In the course of the Civil War, three rockets fell on her house. Wow. Fortunately, nobody got hurt. Yeah, I'm guessing the house is not the sturdiest biggest house uh, i would i would imagine not maybe the chapel may have afforded a little protection but okay. in any event when you're out looking for water you don't even have the benefit of the walls do you three rockets though is is a lot of damage That's, even churches aren't generally designed to withstand artillery are they not not really so um one time she wanted to go and see if her brother was okay he was on the other side of town so she walked through no man's land, risked a rebel roadblock, and she has a northern name which is associated with well, not the rebels, so the enemy essentially. So apparently one shoulder was shouting her name, and obviously it sounds like an enemy name, so let's say we were at war with the French, it'd be like Jacques Cousteau over there. Right. Uh, she just kept walking, just kept walking, waiting for the bullet. Okay. Which never came. This is so funny because I, I, in my head I can't shake the feeling that this was 100, 200 years ago or something. Yeah, and Not I, a decade or two. Uh, and she continues to work. She still looks after the orphans of Brazzaville. And she says, I believe God will provide. Tomorrow will bring better things. And Cassie obviously met this nun. So uh, here's what she had to say. She was amazing. I couldn't believe it when I went round to her house and her generosity in looking after all these children. And, you know, as a sister, she'd had to cho- choose really between her vocation of living in a congregation or living and looking after all these children. And she did the latter and the house was absolutely full and she managed to feed them every day without having any kind of idea really where the food was coming from the next day. But she said, God will provide and just had this kind of calm, wonderful, big smile. And there were some children out in the backyard washing under a tap and they were just were getting on with life all together and she was giving them hope by getting them making sure they went to school and they they were fed and knew that someone there was looking after them looking out for them and she was amazing she had true courage true bravery so there were rather more still faith-based but a rather more constructive and helpful version of courage there from uh, sister mary therese yeah i mean that's it you know in in all the all of the oppression it's funny how there are still people that stand up and become 
perhaps not intentionally, but just uh, icons, people to aspire to, bastions of humanity. Absolutely. And, and I'm going to contrast. Consideration. I'm going to tell you another story of bravery. Um, but th- th- this is one's different because I think Sister Mary Therese was what I called the courage to carry on. I mean, she didn't move. She just, she just kept doing what she was doing in very challenging circumstances. And that obviously takes tr- a true enormous amount of courage. But I'm now going to tell you about uh, Placide Milongo. Uh, Placide Milongo was forced to flee Brazzaville in the, when the fighting broke out. Uh, he trekked for days over tens of kilometers on foot with his family to escape the war. And, um, well, I'll, I'll let uh, Cassie tell the story. Placide Milongo was my colleague and friend, and he was a huge help when I started to research um, and write. He was so brave, so totally brave. Yeah, yeah, he did that enormous journey and it was in ninja camps for a while in the pool area where there was so little food. People came out of that gaunt and starving. But he managed to get across the river, so kind of sneaking away because he was told that um, he was getting in trouble for being outspoken and standing up for people's rights. Um, so they sneaked out of the ninja camp, or the rather displaced camp, really, that was ninja, in a ninja-controlled area, sneaked across the river, got to Kinshasa, and then not long later came back because he he yeah he wanted to check the state of his city, start work again, because he worked for Caritas, which is a humanitarian organisation. So he wanted to be able to start helping other people. A really amazing person. So I'm going to play that for you again because it wasn't necessarily super clear. So the fighting bloke out, he runs away with his family, walks through the night with his family, never stops trying to help people, starts trying to create a humanitarian corridor is what he's trying to do with all these displaced people. Then he gets warned the ninjas are after him because he's causing this trouble and he's making himself known as a as a, a, a troublemaker. Helpful person. Well, helpful, yeah. <laughs> a helpmaker. Yeah. So he, he legs it. He walks for four more days and it says... It said, um, I left with my family, even though we didn't know which way to go, but we couldn't ask anyone for help for fear of attracting attention. So they just walked, hoping they're going in the right direction, pretty much. Okay. So then they make it to a a part of the Congo River, which you can cross, and Kinshasa is just across the river from uh, Brazzaville. So they cross the river. He gets to Kinshasa, which is safe. He's in Democratic Republic of Congo now. He alerts the aid agencies in the area as to what's going on on Brazzaville, because they weren't really aware of how bad it was. Right. And then he goes back to Brazzaville. Why? To Because he still works for the aid agency and he wants to help. He wants to go back and help with the crisis. Okay. Wow. Had I got to Kinshasa, I, I, I fear that I would have gone, well, I'm safe now. That's the end of my story. Well, particularly so, if you're with your family. Right? Well, exactly. So uh, incredible guy. Um, and more just... Just tremendous courage. Yeah, I mean, totally selfless, right? I mean, that's a that's a person built with compassion. And then finally, I'm going to talk about the courage to stand out. So I'm not going to talk about war anymore. I'm going to talk about the sappers. So sappers are members of the Society of Good Timers and Elegant People. Nice. I think I'm joined the member of that. I think I I'm think an honorary member. I think you just qualify straight away with that history right. and everywhere T-shirt you've got. Yeah. <laughs> So this is basically a subculture of like really stylish, well-dressed people. So by day, they you know do their jobs as normal people. And after work, they dress up in like super splendid outfits and parade around. Uh, and apparently August is a good time to spot these people around town because <laughs> a lot of the people who expatriate to Paris mm-hmm. come back for August when Paris kind of shuts down. Uh, they have best dressed competitions. They have a king of the sap comfort or sap competition. It reminds me a little bit of like the voguing in New York of the community of people who like 
become super flamboyant okay in a, almost a protest and uh, the zoot suits in the what was it 30s yeah exactly so like so rejecting rejecting the poverty of your conditions with the finery of your outlook i suppose okay so cassie asked these guys why do you do what they do they said we don't carry guns we don't use violence we're against that we love to look good and to dress well people can come here and see us and know that the war is over we are proving there is more to life than war Love it. So what a kind, they said resistance of a kind, uh, and you get to wear super clothes. And uh, Cassie tells me about her her um, experience with the sappers. All right, cool. It is just amazing. I was in a, a lovely kind of riverside bar with uh, music playing, and when I first saw a sapper, and it's, it is just extraordinary, the finery of the clothes he was wearing. And it was the best cut suit and an amazing yellow cravat and waistcoat and um, hats. It was so well cut and um, well made and good material. Shiny shoes, these kind of um, brocade 1920s dual colour shoes. Must be incredibly hot (laughs) in a tropical country. And um, it's just a really wonderful sign, I think, of in its own form of, of resistance, you know, we are living the high life, you know, nothing in Paris can beat this. It, it, it is competing with haute couture in, in Paris, really, I think, just kind of proving that it's alive and well in Brazzaville. And it's really brilliant. And I think people do look on it well and are quite proud of it and kind of smile. Look on it and smile. That's If that's your contribution to the world, I'd, if that was my contribution to the world, I'd be pretty happy with people looking and smiling. Yeah, no, I love it. I think that's great. I, I, she raises a very valid point about how hot it is. Well, though. yeah, I did think I was getting that. hot. She was just mentioning cravats <laughs> and shiny leather shoes. Yeah, and um, we also did discuss briefly um, that we, what we don't know is necessarily how the conversations go at home. When, did you buy the groceries? Well, no, but I did get this cravat. <laughs> <laughs> Spent the money on a lovely little watch chain. Yeah, <laughs> but still, uh, again, courage to stand out, courage to resist, albeit not in what is traditionally considered bravery. Has that um, spread to other countries? Like, is this group something that so they have sappers in Kinshasa as well? But okay. apparently, it's kind of a slightly different subculture. So it's more hip hoppy, bit more, whereas it's a bit more classic, I think, in Brazzaville. But so that, it is a thing that's slightly beyond Brazzaville. Certainly, it's in Kinshasa. Quite possibly, it goes beyond that. Yeah. So this is ha- this was happening in ninety five to two thousand, or was it did this start at that point? Well, no, it goes it goes way back. It goes back to the twenties. Oh, okay, uh, it right. kind of got suppressed a bit in the 80s and now it's kind of making a comeback, I believe. Mm. Yeah, like people like fun, particularly when you're feeling rather oppressed. There is something sort of not liberating almost about, you know what? No, I'm going to dress up. I don't need to conform to the ugly standards of the world around. It's me. a peaceful demonstration, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Sappers. So that's um, a big thanks to Cassie for both the interview and writing a book that made my job so much easier than it could have been. <laughs> What a um, character. She sounds great. Oh, yeah. We, we really had a laugh. She was lovely. Um, and yeah, so, so yes, Cassie wrote the book. It's called Brazzaville Charms. You can buy it at brazzavillecharms.com or any leading bookselling website that you may be able to think of. Go get the book. Yeah, go buy the, go buy the book from Amazon or another website that's not Amazon. It's, uh, I'm sure you can find it. So now we're going to go north, 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 north. Up into the foresty north, in fact. Okay, cool. Now we're going to meet a new person, a uh, sort of an even more extreme version of relocating for work, which is uh, a guy called Jerome Lewis. 
Jerome Lewis is an anthropologist uh, based in London who wanted to study the Yaka people of northern Congo. So the Yaka people are forest foragers or pygmies as we've known them and they, uh, in this case, uh, some of them live in the northern Congo. So between 1994 and 2001, so our period, he packed his bags and his family and he went to live with them. Oh, just, and his family. Yeah. You, you just threw that in there uh, at absolutely. the end there. It's like, hey, wife, we're going to the Congo. <laughs> and kids. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I think he did have his kids there. I'm not okay. sure how old they were though. Or kid, or kids, I'm not sure. Anyway, yes, he took his family and went, we're going to live in the jungle with pygmy foragers. So he, he travels north. He starts out in London. Hustle, bustle, mm-hmm. tubes, trains. And he goes north until yeah, he mate. reaches... Yeah, governor. Oh. You got an oyster card. Oh, I had that Boris Johnson in my cab. Uh, he flies, oh, sounds of planes, to Congo. And then he travels north until he reaches the ancient forests. So he goes and joins the Yaka. These are forest foragers, a.k.a. pygmies. I d- he did actually talk a little bit about use of the word pygmies because we've previously said it's offensive to some tribes. We did. We said Others, that in the Central African Republic episode. We did. And some uh, sometimes the tribes themselves use the word. So hmm. it's actually got a quite a mixed history, but it does have a little derogatory sense. So I'm going to stick with forest foragers, uh, although Jerome does in fact use the word pygmy in his own thesis. So I guess it's... Not as obviously horrible as we first thought. No. So DNA studies indicate that the Yaka's ancestors have been in the area for about 55,000 years. Wait, 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 wait. What? So these are the original guys, right? These Cradle guys of civilization. Pushed out by the Bantu people. These are the forest foragers who get keep getting shoved into smaller and smaller forest areas. Something that's still going on, of course. 55,000 years ago. Yeah. That's nuts, isn't it? That's crazy to think how long these people have been here. And they were totally adjusted to the forest life. Yeah. One of his biggest challenges, apparently, was actually being just an observer. Everyone's experience of white people is they're people you, who give you jobs to do and they give you money to do it. Mm. So he, he's had to spend quite a lot of time convincing them, I just want to watch you live your lives. I don't want you to do anything for me. And that actually is similar. The, the Yaka have really complex relationships with other groups. So they live in the forest, obviously, and they move around. So they don't own areas. They consider themselves part of the forest, effectively. And they, the Bantu people, so the farmers who are also in those same areas, they know they, they call them bilo or bilo, um, but they also call them gorillas. Oh, nice. Um, which they, the, the Bantu people, do not like because it implies oh. a beastly uh aspect but actually it's a bit more complex than that they they refer to them as gorillas because gorillas are also territorial so i own this space is an attitude that's completely alien to the yakas way of life and so they think the bantu are like gorillas because they're like they dominate and try and own an area of the forest okay they also uh, weirdly there's a a lot of things that say that the bantu own uh yaka people or pygmy people oh so but it's not quite that simple. They definitely are well, like very marginalised people. Well, exactly. Yes and no. This is why it's a bit more complex than that, because the Bantu will essentially hire Yaku people by lending them something or giving them things. So it's a kind of much more of a patronage scenario rather than a you are shackled and you are, you belong to me. Yeah. Likewise, the Yaka talk about the Bantu villagers using the kind of terminology they have for hunting. So it's almost a, to some extent, it's almost a game for getting what you want out of this guy. So if if your Bantu who you associate with isn't giving you what you want, you'll march around saying how he's just like a gorilla and he's not manly and he doesn't share things or he's not able to provide for the people who work for him. So a little bit more like, I think, the feudal kind of scenario where yeah. they are definitely and clearly higher in the hierarchy, but... There's also a, well, you have to provide as well as a result. 
So they have quite complex relationships with each other because also the Yakka, they can just bugger off into the forest whenever they want and no one's going to follow them because the Bantu don't particularly like going in the forest because they don't have the forest skills that the Yaku do. Hmm. Yaku, Yaka, sorry. So one of the challenges that this gave to Jerome Lewis when he was first there was he needed to use Bantu translators. But when they've got the Bantu stood there, you're not going to get the straight answers from a, a Yaka that you might want. So he decided to learn the language for himself. Wow. Okay. Cool. So remind me, what's he there for? He's an anthropologist. So he's studying these people and how they live. Okay. Haven't there been other anthropologists? There have, and there, but there's a lot to learn. And not only is there a lot to learn, it's also very difficult to learn. So one of the things that that I think he brought in terms of innovation was previous anthropologists has used Bantu translators. So they're getting this version of events that's travelled through the equivalent of your feudal lord. So if you ask the peasants, how's it going? While the lord stood there, (laughs) you might get a different answer to if you ask them when they're in their hovel. Mm. One of the big challenges, though, for the budding ethnographer in that area is um, uh, it's it's really rude, apparently, in Yaka culture to ask questions. (laughs) That must make it very hard. So Lewis has some understatement on this he says this poses many challenges for the keen anthropologist whereas objects and goods can be demanded very aggressively without causing offense information about religious issues or people's thoughts and feelings cannot be demanded without risking offending them wow okay that's kind of interesting and i I wonder if that's something that i should start doing i would consider it questions like get really irritating after a while exactly Uh, but do you want to do it hand in hand with the if someone asks you for something you just have to give it to them no so we've come across this before do you remember when we looked at Kiribati they had a similar culture of someone in your family group said oh I like your car can I have your car you, you have, have to, say, to give them the car yeah here's the keys I guess <laughs> well it's the same in the Yaka if everything is everyone's you don't really own anything and sharing is absolutely intrinsic to your life as a Yaka okay so anyway Lewis follows these guys around and lives with them for years um, and um, eventually even gets initiated into some of their spiritual groups he becomes a I'm sorry I have a question though yes. if you can't ask any questions and you're an anthropologist how are you learning stuff are you just observing well you observe initially and then eventually as you develop trust you can have a little more judgment about when you can ask things and who you can ask and when it's appropriate but he did have he he gets initiated into the spiritual group so participating as well so he becomes a konja wamokondi which is a forest spirit controller get that (laughs) this is great news opens up a ton of knowledge about these spiritual societies tiny catch once you're initiated you're not allowed to talk about them so in his paper he says and then i got initiated into the secrets of the tribe which i can't share with you and to his credit he then says well i I can't tell you because now i'm a member of the society i am suspicious (laughs) yeah he could be making the whole thing up i suppose (laughs) i learned so much stuff just can't can't tell you i'm so sorry guys honestly it's good stuff you'd love to know what i know it's gold honestly (laughs) anthropological gold (laughs) but it was the breaks right so and he has to learn a lot of things he learns things that we would consider really basic he learns how to speak obviously the language he talks about how they have six verbs for styles of looking uh, including head moving around to penetrate the trees and throwing your eyes around in danger and fear throwing your eyes around throwing your eyes around that's in really a danger point. and fear i love that it's good isn't it? give me an example of how i'd fit that word in uh, I saw John. He said he thought he heard a tiger, and he was throwing his eyes around. <laughs> he was, yeah, yeah. That's how I'd use it okay, anyway. That's but cool. No, I'm not a fluent in Yaka. Yeah, I, I, I only know Konja Wamakondi. <laughs> what does that mean? That is forest spirit controller. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, he also learns how how to walk, ducking around. He, 
the animal paths is one thing, but you're walking, but you're also foraging, right? So you're not only just walking like you and I would walk, or mm-hmm. you're not chopping your way through with a machete. You're also looking around, looking for hunt tracks, looking for things you might want to eat. Uh, he also talks about learning to walk in marshes. And marshes, you, you you walk along and you're kind of probing around with your toes, trying to find roots to put your foot on because if you don't put your foot on a route you could sink into the into mud. the mud forever oh that sounds fun yeah absolutely terrifying hey question what do they get from this i get that he gets to anthropologize 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 apologize but what are they getting from it is he giving them money or like are they so the the he couldn't really overcome the bit where the white guy is here therefore We'll do work for him and he'll give us money. So right. I think he gave people jobs in sort of re- okay. relatively unrelated ways. And once you live with someone long enough, you can establish some trust with them, can't you? Yeah. But when you t- like, I just don't understand the logistics of it. Well, one day we'll have to get one of these people on and ask them questions because I, I want to know how it works. Because like you just turn up in their village one day or do you, and you say, coordinate it in advance? Well, I guess the introductions have to come from probably a Bantu farmer who has a relationship with the, the forest foragers. Right, but you don't I'm going to just turn up and have your connection be like, oh, they're here now, so... Well, I wonder because, I mean, part of the culture of these people is you share everything. So well, there is that. You, yeah. you don't, you know, when you said what's in it for them, that's not really a thought they have. They, someone wants something and then you give it to them. So if he wants to follow you around, then I guess he follows you around. Yeah. They have, uh, you know. I'm, I'm sure that that works. They've been doing it for a long time, I'm, I'm sure, culturally. But it does feel like people could be taken advantage of well we'll come to that because very much so yes that it, it caused a very significant problem in a very specific way um, okay. which i'll tell you about a little bit later all right so they have a very different social structure so one of the reasons i wanted to talk about the yaka was at the moment uh, in our period you've got this civil war where you've got people who go i'm in charge no i'm in charge no i'm in charge and fighting and killing each other over it and the yaka present just a huge contrast to this way of living because they have no leaders nobody has the authority to enforce rules over anybody else they they have kind of sort of temporary spokespeople within groups but okay. they, there is no i'm the boss there's no chief there's no does that translate to families like you know is that is the mother in charge or the father do they have like a paternal father well, figure or a priest I, or something i couldn't swear to it but the, the impression i get is not no. really it's wow, uh, it's horses for courses a little bit but here's the interesting part instead of but still there are it's not that there are no rules and you can do what you want but they use mockery and teasing Mm. as a way of social control so this is particularly a job for the old ladies apparently if someone behaves during the day in a way that you're not comfortable with or happy with you reenact the events of the day in a comically mocking way right and everyone laughs and comments and go ah that guy's been a complete idiot ah what an idiot <laughs> yeah. uh, until eventually the person in question arrives and is like hey guys oh, that, that, that was me who did that and everyone's right. going that's such bad behavior what a what a nasty piece of work that guy is and laugh but they're all laughing right because mm. it's it's done in fun and and i guess and the, here's the thing that they keep going after the individual arrives and obviously goes oh that's me that is and they keep going until they laugh as well interesting so you laugh at your own until failure. you laugh at yourself they mm. keep going and that's the kind of resolution is to to laugh and right. it's and this joy and laughter is a massive part of this culture and it sounds so uplifting and positive it's not uncommon like i you know we're friends we've done this like there are times where we'll rib each other over things that we've done that you know we find silly it, and it breaks it doesn't Co- it yeah, it breaks it in a way that doesn't lend you with you feeling huge shame or a burden of guilt it's kind yeah, of shame is the right word you're right you're sort of circumventing the shame but also addressing but still it for amending long. the behavior yeah <laughs> 
There's a lot going on there, isn't there? Yeah, and for me, it begs the question of if you had that kind of really socially dense individual in your currently tribe, mm. and they didn't recognise themselves, well, how long you'd have thing. to go on for until you go, John? It's John, you, it's you, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because there will be those people that are on a spectrum, right? That that won't be able to see themselves in in that. But pattern. maybe I guess if if this is your mode of uh, engagement, maybe mm. that you're sufficiently trained to go. Ah, yeah, okay, that was a scenario that I was in, and maybe it's even more useful for people of that nature because it's I recognise the scene because someone said, "Can I have the banana?" and you said, "No, you can't have the banana," and everyone's making fun of you, and I'm thinking, well, you would recognise at least that you also refused to give someone a banana that very day. So mm-hmm. I think you'd always recognise it's you. And then maybe it's almost teaching you. It's like, okay, well, I've now learned a new cue. So even if I didn't intrinsically feel the lack of generosity there, I'm now being very clearly advised that is not something we do. Yeah. And so don't do it next time. So I wonder if that's actually almost better in some ways. Anyway. Let's talk about the forest, though. So we talked about joy and laughter, but the other big thing, or not big thing for pygmies, the other um, aspect of pygmy life is you you are part of the forest. We talked before, as, as you said, in Central African Republic, they're, they're almost guardians of the forest. Nobody owns the forest. They say Komba, who's the sort of creator, god, character, made the forest for all creatures to share. And Jerome talks about one incident where on a hunting trip, they come across a group of gorillas and the silverback smells the smoke of the fire and he begins roaring and shouting. And uh, this guy called Emeka, who's one of the Yaka people, he's furious and he shouts and swears and he shouts at the silverback for thinking the forest belonged to him. Wow. <laughs> Which, uh, on the subject of courage, shouting at a silverback gorilla probably qualifies, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, yeah. So then there's a set of rules for your hunting called Aquila, which basically uh, it's a cultural way of managing the forest because if a patch of forest isn't productive anymore, it gets sealed off and no one hunts there until it, it's bountiful again. Mm-hmm. Everyone in your camp gets a portion of the meat from the hunt. Nobody comes home and goes, I killed this pig and it's mine. Right. It's, everyone gets the meat. And also the thing, the notion is that the forest really cares about its inhabitants and it, it wants to hear that you're happy. So when you're happy and you, it, you sing and dance and play, because the forest wants to hear that you're happy Mm. which is a lovely notion but you said earlier this is open to problems and i mentioned that one of the major industries of congo was forestry and logging okay and this is where it all pretty much falls apart so this notion for the yaka that we're losing the forest as you and i know we are is just pretty much incomprehensible to them the forest has always provided and will always provide and it's there's enough for everyone is their, their their mindset going back uh, century. There's a tree called a sapelli tree, um, and the tallest sapelli trees they go high above the canopy. And before the rainy season, loads of butterflies come and land on them. Oh, cool! And they hatch. Uh, they lay their eggs on the leaves, and they hatch mm. into caterpillars, which are super tasty and nutritious. And and pygmies really love these caterpillars for two reasons: one, delicious; mm. two. They come at a time when the rains are much less, the animals are harder to find, hunting is a lot harder. So basically uh, they say Comba sends the caterpillars to feed people when hunting is hard. Oh, really? So they're the really important part of the sort of cycle of life. And there must be a lot of butterflies laying eggs. Well, yeah, exactly. So then the loggers arrive, right? Now, they start chopping down the trees, but the Yaka don't mind because you don't own the trees. They're not their trees. Everyone can have a tree. There's room for everyone the forest will provide. But obviously that starts to become a problem. 
And this was happening when Jerome was there and he tried to help and they had meetings with the Yaka and the loggers. And this is this is something I found just really evocative. They had this obviously is incredible cultural divide. You've got a forest forager yeah. and a logger. The hunter he says the hunter gatherers were really uncomfortable in the office buildings where they had these meetings. <laughs> Tasks such as opening doors proved daunting to them. Wow, okay. And then it's just so when you where do you see a door? You're a forest forager. Mm. They have these kind of huts, but they don't put a door on them. That's just crazy. And it, you just don't think the door, again, is one of those things that you think is so fundamental. Yeah. And yet these guys are like, whoa, what's that? <laughs> so anyway, they, um, in the end, the, the pygmies explain that actually only the sapel trees who go above the canopy of the forest host these caterpillars because I guess the butterflies land on them above the, the canopy. So amazingly, the part of the solution they find is is an, an app. <laughs> <laughs> what, a mobile phone app? A mobile phone app, right? So there's this app called Sapelli, and what it helps them do, I think if I've, I think I've got this right, is that the Yakka mark trees on, so there's maps, a Google Maps type thing on the app, and they go, right, there's this tree here and this tree here, don't cut them down because they're high enough to host the, the butterflies, so... They're going to give us caterpillars where these other ones that don't go above the canopy don't attract the, the butterflies. So you can chop them down and we don't mind because we can still get our caterpillars from the other trees. So astonishingly, he sets up the uh, sort of set of rules for these guys to then mark all the trees that you can't cut down and protect certain areas so that the loggers could log still, but without impacting so badly on the, the yakka's lifestyle and environment. Wow. Okay. So trying to find that middle ground. Right. Um, it, it worked a bit, but not really enough. It's just way too corrupt and there's profit to be had by not paying attention to Yakka. So I don't think it was the end of the problem by any means. Obviously, the lifestyle of the Yakka is under threat today. The forests are under threat. There's even just a logging road comes through, then it yeah. disrupts the environment. So... Um, well, you don't know, do you? It's the knock-on effect, right? Yeah, absolutely. You cut down one type of tree and the others don't aren't able to grow or animals aren't there then pollinating others. And yeah, it's, it's the knock-on effect. Yeah, so what's going to happen to the yakka is, is very uncertain. But uh, it's not clear it's to not me that it's going to get a lot better, to be honest with you. So no. you've got to be grateful for the likes of Jerome Lewis for even capturing these these lives that, uh, I mean, hopefully stay with us, but there's a possibility that they won't. Is Jerome still there? Uh, no, he came. he actually came back. His studies were interrupted by the Civil War he had to come back because the civil war broke out okay um i think he went back again for a while but he's i think he's in london now i got the sense that this was quite remote so i'm just curious how, why the civil war was impacting the yucca in the north i i wanted to ask him that question as well and uh i, I might send him a note and see if he uh okay. can let me know because i i also wondered that because you think well you're in the jungle no one's really bothering you right tiny little village yeah but i think it's probably that you know all westerners have to some extent to be looked after and you know your your embassy probably won't be happy with you roaming about in a nation that's ravaged by civil war i could see that yeah for sure and bear in mind he's a he was an anthropologist with a university so mm. quite probably also the university has a duty of care so even though he could perhaps say oh no i'm safe in the jungle would you as a university just go yeah that's fine you carry on yeah. or would you say no you've got to come home i wonder if the loggers had such problems oh, if I they would. delayed their <laughs> their logging during the civil war i'm sure there was plenty of logging to be done yeah excuse me sir your two o'clock is here ah the pygmies yes send them in Ah, hello, hello. Welcome to Gotwood. I'm John, head of uh, logging here. I suppose you could call me chief. Uh, head man or elder or uh, John. John, John's fine. Hmm. So so you're the ones living in our woods, eh? <laughs> I, I mean, your, the woods. Hmm? 
anyway, look, um, to business. And, and I think you're going to be excited about this. What I'm about to present will help us to help you by geolocating areas of particular interest to enable hyper-targeted, pygmy-positive tree felling. And it's something you'll always have with you because it's an app. Mm -hmm. Oh, uh, wait, yeah. An app is a small piece of software. You install it on your phone. Oh, uh, yeah, um, a, a phone is a small handheld box. Um, it allows you to communicate across great distances using a wireless network. Um, invisible birds carrying messages over big far. Hmm. Yeah, look, so mate, the thing is, this operating system is way out of date and you're missing several security patches. You're wide open to attack by hostile actors and you're going to be riddled with malware within a week. We can only accept this after extensive user and penetration testing and with the introduction of full end-to-end -end encryption. Big far. So I'm now going to finish on what I consider the ultimate courage, which I call the courage to poke an elephant in the bum with a spear. <laughs> wow. Okay. So the, the Yucca value elephants, for, not for ivory, although they did hunt for ivory when the when such things were popular, because obviously the Bantu would give them a job, go get me some ivory. And so, mm. all right, fine. Usually in exchange for some tobacco or something. I don't know. Uh, but the actual original hunting of elephants was for the fat and the meat that they provide. You kill an elephant, mm. everyone's got something to eat, right? Not surprisingly. So elephant hunters, they're known as tumor. It's not a tumor. <laughs> Come on, I have It to. is a tumor. It's not a tumor. <laughs> so you can't just, just nail one elephant and call yourself a tumor. You have to have really shown that you've got what it takes. And they really know their elephants, these people. They've got over 20 names for types of elephants. Okay. So a Kamba is a dominant male. A Dilomi is a second male. A, a, a Pombi is a rogue or lone male elephant. I want you to call me a Pombi from now on, mate. A Pombi? Mm. No, I'm going to call you Malembutu. Oh, what's that? Elephant without tusks. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and there was even a mystical elephant, apparently, with six tusks called a Yiti Nabanyoku or Njoku. I'm not sure. That's a long name. Uh, yeah, well, he's got six tusks, so you've got to mm. respect the, the chap. So they hunt elephants. Not very often. No, it's not a daily activity. Um, I don't suppose you're going to you get your way through a, a whole elephant very quickly. Yeah, so have you finished that? No, I'm still going. <laughs> still going. <laughs> so then in, in the something Jerome kindly sent me was a chapter he's entitled Elephants are Scary. He is not wrong. Elephants kill more zookeepers than any other animal. Oh, really? In zoos, yeah. That doesn't surprise me. So one of the ways they defend themselves is they'll they're running off and then they'll stop and hide. Well, how an elephant hides is slightly beyond me, but I guess it's thick jungle, so there's uh, more opportunities than you to get in Croydon High Street. Mm. So they hide and then whoever's chasing them catches up and they they use their trunk to grab them and then they violently shake you from side to side to break your back. Right. Okay. Uh, then they throw you to the ground. Yeah. And then they trample you. Yeah. And then they tusk you. Right. And then you're dead. <laughs> I think I'd be dead earlier. Yeah, they, they had me at broken spine probably, but yeah. these guys do not muck about and they make sure they've done a thorough job. Well, the alternative is be killed, right? So they're, they're, going, they're going at it. They're, I mean, you can see their point, can't you? Um, I, I had a conversation with a zookeeper. Uh, we adopted an elephant at one point uh, for a friend's birthday. And uh, part of that gift was to go to the zoo and 
spend some time with the zookeeper who was caring for the, the elephants. And he was the one who told me that, you know, elephants kill more zookeepers than any other animals uh, in captivity. And he said it's because they remember uh, any slight that you could long forgotten, they won't have done. And he said, what will happen is they will trip you up. You're lying on your back. And then they use the flat of their head, like between their eyes, to just push down slowly on your head until it pops. It was a fun day at the zoo that day. <laughs> We're all going to the zoo. zoo. We're all going to the zoo. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my Lord. He'd be an elephant keeper. Um, Head squash or broken back? Well. Plus spearing. I opt for neither because the yakka tell me how to escape from an elephant. Yeah. Uh, lots of just-in-time direction changes to exploit your turning speed, which is better than the elephant's massive momentum. Yeah. I, uh, mm, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> fair. I mean, why not? <laughs> serpentine, serpentine. <laughs> You've got to give it a go, haven't you? Yeah, uh, you'd give it a go. This is in the jungle, of course. So how easy that is, is another another question. Can an elephant outrun a human? Um, I suspect so. I would imagine so. Because mm. humans don't run very fast, particularly, do they? They're just very good at endurance yeah. running. An adult elephant can run at an average speed of 15 miles per hour. This is sufficient to outrun most humans in a short distance race. Over long distances a human would be faster. An average elephant is not fast enough to outrun Usain Bolt in a short race, because he is the world's fastest human and can reach a speed of 27 miles per hour. Almost twice as fast as the elephant. Thank you. Have you ever seen an x-ray of an elephant's foot? Yes, I have. It looks like a human's foot. Like, almost exactly. The bones are identical, um, except that it's like it's on a, it's wearing high heels, because the heel's <laughs> really high up on the padding. <laughs> it's amazing. It looks just like it. So, yeah, I, I think I've seen whale fins as well, and you see all the fingers of a whale, and you go, oh, well, mammals, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. So anyway, elephants are scary. We've decided that Jerome is exactly correct when he describes them as such. But these guys have decided I'm going to hunt them. So where does the courage to do that come from? Did Jerome go elephant hunting? Uh, yeah. Wow. I, well, no, sorry. No, he didn't go elephant hunting, but he did come across an elephant, I believe, in one occasion. It was accidental. So when they're hunting, the, the yucca, admit it can be scary. They've got a song they sing when they're facing a daunting opponent in the forest. It's Longokodi Kaba Menguli, praying mantis, give me courage. Oh, you nice. kind of charm and sway from side to side like a praying mantis wow. to give yourself courage. They do do that, don't they, praying mantises? They sort of do that little weird side yeah. to side sway. And the mantis knows what's what. Yeah. Um, elephant hunting in particular is scary, obviously. And in this case, they get a courage from the community. So an elephant hunt is called a mawaka yabaito, and that is a woman's hunt. So an elephant hunt, if you plan it, if you run across an elephant in the forest, it doesn't really count. If you're planning an elephant hunt, it's considered a woman's work because it's the women who, in inverted commas, take the first strike on the elephant. So men prepare by sharpening their big spears, obviously. They reinforce it with a bit of extra uh, stick if they have to. And the women spear their elephant by singing a song called Yele, and they sing this song into the night. Sure. So this is, and this is Yele, the elephant hunting song. Question for you. Elephants tend to be in a herd, right? Apart from the males, who tend to be solitary. So are they hunting a herd? Well, the impression I get, and I'm going to describe how we hunt an elephant, is that you find a lone elephant. Now, I don't know whether elephants in thick forest have slightly different behaviours to elephants in the savannah. Yeah, it's just me generalising again. You're just just elephant It's just Western view, isn't it? (laughs) It's just Western elephant view. (laughs) 
So this in, in with this song, they are ritually spearing the elephant. Okay. So they're out there, and the elephant has been speared spiritually by the song, and that's important because in in yucca hunting, the first person to strike an animal is considered the hunter of that animal. So not the person who kills it; it's the sort of first strike. Oh, so the women of the village perform the first strike in the case of an elephant hunt, uh, metaphorically. Metaphorically, okay. And that's why it's called women's the women's hunt. Nice. So conceivably, Jerome speculates that obviously it's scary as hell to go out on an elephant hunt, and actually this this is a way of giving you the courage that you need because it's it's not up to you. You're part of someone else's hunt almost at this point. Yeah. So they drink a special potion. They're singing the song, and they fly over the forest to locate and tie up the elephant with their mystical power. Neat. So then the men go with their spears to uh, rather more literally spear the elephant. Actually kill it. Yeah. <laughs> So you're going to need kit for your elephant hunt. I've got some stuff for you. Okay. Uh, so you get hold gun. of these things and you'll be ready. So we're going to spear hunt this elephant. They, right. You can shoot them with a gun if you want, but uh, historically, obviously, they didn't. And even today, they, they don't sometimes. So off we go. We're going to hunt an elephant. You're going to get an elephant kit, starting with a fibre string, the Makodi, tied around the forehead to guide your senses. Okay. Improve your awareness. I was going to say, it's not, not great defensive. Uh, no, this is just for, for awareness. Now, the paste, or your moonbee paste, kept in a little horn. You smear that on your forehead, chest and calves. That's going to make you invisible to the elephant. Is it? You better hope so. A black rope called Nekunga is worn around the waist or over your head and shoulder. That's going to be... Uh, it's, a, it's a medicine that will give you the ability to kill elephants and some protection. Nice. Nice, right? Uh, an Esongo necklace will keep you safe by providing foresight to see what will happen next. Can I have two of those? Give you half a dozen if you like. You're no. only going to see what happens next. <laughs> they don't stack, unfortunately. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> and then this is a really important one, the Mondanga bracelet. It's worn on the wrist and it's quite, <laughs> it's quite an interesting concept. It's... It's quite sort of thick, like a thick bangle. You know, you sometimes you get those people with those kind of shell bangles. Yeah. It's kind of that sort of size, and you you use it to kind of remote control the elephant. You turn your bracelet, and it will cause the elephant to turn wow. in the direction that you want him to. So that's quite important, because the positioning of the elephant will determine how safe and where, where they're going to effectively be able to get him. Do they genuinely believe that, that that works, or is this all symbolic and in the tradition of doing this? I think... So they genuinely, I would say they genuinely believe it works. The, okay. To tie it back to the conversations I had with Cassie, that throughout Cong- the Congo, spiritual belief in magic is absolutely universal. Everyone has right. a sorcerer in their family and it is absolutely believed. It's not. Okay. Uh, so I could turn my bracelet. And the, and the elephant, elephant will turn, turn. In the way. Yeah. And now you might argue that there's a certain incentive to sort of talk yourself in a little bit because you've got to sure. go hunting the elephant. Where is your courage going to come from? Again, there's right. a faith that I've got these things to, to make this okay because mm. I'm a pygmy and I'm about to stab an elephant. Yeah, right. The biggest of the, the creatures. I classically, famously, very big indeed. Amazing. So off we go. We're ready. You're kitted up. Oh, yeah. Take your spear. Don't forget your spear. A uh, big kind of leaf-bladed kind of right. fella. I just got a new one, actually. Oh, good, yeah. Was yeah. This. <laughs> <laughs> well, I ordered it from the Amazon. Yay! Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, beautiful. Right, so um, let's go elephant hunting. Um, now, how do you think you spear an elephant? Quickly, from a distance. You'd think that, but no. You have to run up to the elephant and stab it with your spear. Okay. If you throw your spear, it's not going to go anywhere near deep enough. Right. Right. Uh, you just annoy it and now you've got an annoyed elephant possibly with a sort of spear (laughs) slightly sticking out of it Uh, no what you have to do is you have to really shove it in there Mm. which means you've got to run up to that elephant or sneak up to that elephant and go for it right so there's there's three techniques i'm going to share with you you can pick which one you like in Mm -hmm. terms of elephant hunting starting with the underbelly technique so you need the wind in the elephant's face the sun behind him so he can't see you and uh smell you 
Uh, you've also smeared yourself in elephant dung so you don't smell quite so humany. Delicious. Position your, your elephant as best you can with your Mundanga bracelet, Mondanga bracelet. Uh, get him in a good position so you've got access to the flanks on both sides. Yep. Now, you're invisible because you're paste. Right. And the smell. So you, you sneak up on your elephant, then you come in just in front of the hind leg, shove your spear right up into his abdomen. You're trying to get it up behind the rib cage into towards the heart and in the vital organs. This sounds so sad. Um, now, the elephant's going to notice that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. um, you then duck under the elephant. You don't oh, run away. You duck under the elephant okay. and run off into the undergrowth because what the elephant's going to do is going to turn yeah. to look for the spear. Where you were, yeah. And then he's going to try and he's going to find the shaft. He's going to try and pull it out. Oh. While he's doing that, you run for the hills pretty much. Um, and then because the spear's at an awkward angle, the, the elephant almost kills itself by just jiggling the spear, the spear inside its body. Oh, man. Um, and then you wait for the elephant to collapse and you kill it. More stabbing? No, you just wait. You you should then kill it. Oh, sorry, no, it's, you have killed it, sorry. Okay, right. Um, it's weird. I remember reading that they did brain scans on elephants and receptors in their brain or whatever that flash lights when they're looking at human beings in the same way that our brains flash when we look at puppies. Oh, really? Yeah, so they look <laughs> at us like we're little cute little puppies. Oh, but the puppies just stabbed you. So, yeah, it's like us <laughs> what a hanging around walking into like a group of little, tiny little puppies and then they're like, ah. Stab him. <laughs> Chop, oh, no. There's a chopstick in your guts. Well, they, the good news is they don't regularly hunt elephants. This is a once or twice a year at tops kind of affair. Oh, well, that's fine then. So watch out for those puppies. It's only once or twice a year. I mean, you, eat, you eat them as well, so it's not like they're just being... No, it's not wasted, right? So now I'm going to introduce you to technique number two, uh, which is the anus technique. The anus technique. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this is possible. Mine or theirs? Uh, theirs, fortunately. Okay. Um, well, I'm not sure, fortunately. So this is when you can't <laughs> safely run under the belly of the elephant, which mm-hmm. one might argue is never that safe to run under the belly of an elephant. But again, wind in your face. You approach from the rear, unsurprisingly. And as with so much in life, Jerome explains the key is to have a clear approach to the anus and an escape route on the opposing side. I mean, we've all been there. It's advice for living, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so you get up to the elephant and you literally shove the spear into the elephant using the tissue of his anus as a path into the abdomen. I guess because it's the thinnest part of the skin. Yeah, and it, it's, a, you know, there's no bones because you know there's no bones in right, that bit. Yeah. And then you, once it's in, you kind of wiggle the spear to damage it internally as much as you can. And then you run away as fast as you can. Again. And again, you wait for the elephant to die. These sound like super painful ways to die if you're an elephant. Doesn't sound brilliant, does it, for the elephant? But finally, the, the there is the Achilles tendon technique, which you can actually combine with the other two. This seems like super dangerous, though. You cut the Achilles tendon of the elephant so it right. can't walk. <sighs> and then this is crazy, right? So you, you slice the tendon and the elephant's then stuck. It can't run anyway. Right, you slice yeah. the tendons. So you then get all your buddies, right? The elder men of the group will build fires and set up anvils. Okay. Why? Because while, while they're doing that, the younger men are going to surround the elephant and then on one side you rush towards the elephant and the elephant will go for you mm. and then you rush back again. And while the elephant's going for you, on the other side, your buddies stab the elephant with their spears. Right, okay. You push the spear in and then the elephant's really annoyed and it drags it out. And that bends the spears and blunts the spears as you hit elephant bone. So the older men then, are, whilst the, the young men are charging in and stabbing, mm. the older men are fixing the spears over and over again to allow you to get the next attack. And so basically you sit there stabbing, stabbing, stabbing until the elephant dies. I mean, I, I get it. It makes me sad. It is sad because elephants are lovely. It's one of those things that 
as part of the cycle of the forest when it was the yakka and an elephant a year yeah. and it fed the village and we'll talk about how it feeds the village as well but yeah i understand it's elephants are lovely and it's sad but i mean you've got to marvel at the awesomeness of humankind in its abilities to be able to take down creatures so much bigger than itself. it's in, it is incredible but to, to also put this slightly in context in terms of oh no that's sad that very emotion is can be quite problematic because one of the things that's happening in the northern congo is there is a movement to say you can't kill any animal to protect them mm-hmm. but in fact what that's really doing is the yaka are being they're kind of the low-hanging fruit because they're not connected they're the marginalized in society so you can yeah. catch the yaka hunting and you punish them and beat them and the, what they call the eco guards prevent them from hunting but the if you work for the logging company and your cousin's a politician in the local town hall suddenly you're not being punished and actually you're killing elephants at much more volume to feed the logging camp and you're getting away with it because the system of corruption is such. So what they've actually statistically, since they've banned hunting, the elephant population's sunk significantly. So rather than having this sustainable culture of kill an elephant, feed your village for a couple of weeks, you've actually got the yucca being prevented from doing any hunting. But it hasn't really stopped the hunting. And the, the well-intentioned rule don't hunt elephants has pretty much backfired. Because had you said, actually, the yucca are in charge of this jungle you guys can't log, the elephants would be fine, even though they'd still be hunted by the yakka, but they would only be for food for their village, for their group. So, I mean, there is a very strong case to be made to say, actually, seal off, seal off, or identify this large area of forest, call that the yakka forest. Mm -hmm. No one logs, no one does anything, but the yakka can live their lives, and you'd probably be fine. But uh, this sort of well-meaning, let's ban all hunting, has had a terrible impact on the yakka, who now can't hunt. So now they have to do what? Go and work around the logging camps. And now the problem is actually exacerbated, because now there's another person to be fed in the logging camp. So it's it's really uh, a difficult problem. I, mean, I don't have any answers particularly, but uh, I think for me, the sadness of, oh, they've killed an elephant actually needs to be put in context, which was... You know the actual destruction of this rate of this forest is not individual forest foragers hunting elephants to eat. It's logging, and that's having so much more devastating effect. Saying, "Oh, look what we've done! We've stopped hunting elephants. Aren't we good?" isn't really helpful at all. But it makes you feel good because the elephants aren't. You're not hearing about elephants being killed, which is a shame. But there it is. But we've killed an elephant. We're yakka. We're pygmies. We've killed an elephant, which still blows my mind as a thing to do. Mm. Uh, the women have been singing yele that song. This whole time, they don't stop. They don't all sing all the time, but the the song continues until the hunt is complete. And uh, then everyone leaves and goes off to collect the meat. You you cut the elephant meat, you pack it up to take back to the camp. If the camp's too far away, you just set up a new camp, not too close to the elephant's body because it's going to attract uh, animals that like to eat flesh and you don't want too many of them in your camp. You take it back, you have a feast. Uh, There's drumming. It's a big celebration because we've got great bounty, right? We've got Mm -hmm. meat for everyone. You put signs of a hooped liana, you know, um, what do you call it? Uh, like vines oh vines right Um, you leave those as a marker to other forest foragers in the area to go hey we've got an elephant everyone come so everyone sort of descends on the the area they have feasting and they have storytelling and they have this sort of spirit spirit play Mm. where they summon spirits from the forest and this is declaring your joy and uh, the bounty back to the forest because he wants to hear you having a good time because it's provided you with an elephant to eat. Sure, yeah. Um, and, and Jerome Lewis once spent two weeks on this sort of post-elephant feasting. Two weeks? Two weeks drumming and eating and people kind of come and elephant. go. Yeah. So I guess there must be some sort of preservation of the meat over two weeks. Yeah, they Otherwise, smoke the meat. They smoke, they smoke yeah. the okay. meat, yeah. 
That's a lot of meat. Yeah, and so other people come and go from other villages, and it's, uh, well, not villages, but groups, because they they don't have tribes. And yeah, you spend a couple of weeks going, yay, elephant was great. I wonder what they do with all of the stuff, all of the skin. I'm guessing they're not eating that, so that must be used for something. Bones tusks i wonder what they use it for yeah i'm not sure they they they, i i didn't look into it like the insides as well does that just get discarded i would imagine that's eaten uh anything that you can eat you probably want to eat and all the insides are pretty much edible intestines i guess probably yeah i guess and and also there's an element of the forest itself has to feed on whatever's left so much creatures of the jungle i mean i'm sure they'll all have a go keen on a bit of elephant yeah they are would you eat elephant would i eat elephant yeah I would eat elephant. I don't see why not. Um, I wouldn't you know, Which bit? seek out the death of an elephant. Well, apparently the delicacy for the yakka is the pad on the foot. Oh, the bit I was just talking about. Yeah, uh, but I wouldn't have that. I'd just have a regular old uh, rump steak. I guess because it's tenderized all the time, with all that weight just constantly so, pounding yeah. on it. <laughs> it's like, it's very it's... fatty, apparently. it's the, the fat kind of melts and it's all delicious. Okay. People do love fat. People love fat. I mean, it's important if you're a forest forager. The, the supply of fat is, is sure. quite a key element of your nutritional fat, needs. Fat, salt, sugar. These are the things humanities love. Exactly. So um, so that's life in the forest with the foragers, the yakka. Thank you so much Amazing. to Jerome Lewis for recording all this. He sent me loads of really useful stuff. He was super helpful. Awesome. Thanks also to the Pitt Rivers Museum for the sound that uh, we heard. Highly we'll put recommend. those links in the uh, notes for this podcast. And on our website. Yes, we will. H-H-E-podcast.com. So that's me. That's Courage. That's the Congo, 1995 to 2000. Amazing. Do you have courage? Not in comparison to any of those people we've just talked about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's it's hard not to sort of bring it back and reflect for a moment. I felt pretty rubbish at the end of my research. (laughs) I sort of assessed myself and found myself wanting quite considerably. Okay, well, look, then I guess that brings us to uh, my episode next week. Or is it your episode? Well, I I thought it was. Is it not my episode? Well, here's the thing, Ryan. Okay. Um, I don't know if you're aware of the game football. Um, Oh, soccer time. Yeah, soccer time. That's the one. Um, Now, there is a football tournament occurring called the Euros. There is, the Euro Championships 2021. So I was wondering if we might do something thematically connected to this major celebration of the beautiful game. I love the soccer ball. Let's do it. (laughs) What do we do? How do we do this? So I have a proposal. Okay. They call it a game of two halves, famously. They do, yeah. So how about we do a game of two halves? I'll do half, you do half. Yeah. So we'll do half as much research as we normally do. Okay. But we both do it. I love it. Yeah. Um, how about we do just the European countries that are taking part in the tournament? Uh, what about the years, though? Like, years, it's not going to make sense if we get 10 BC. <laughs> the Big Bang to 2000 BC might be tricky. Yeah. So let's do um, years since the Euros. Years of the Euros. Yeah, the tournament date. So the, the, the years of the tournaments. So a Euro country in a Euro year. And the topic, football or no? No, I just think we just do the random topic. So we randomise the... Yeah, it's going to be, for the country, it's going to be one of the 24 countries that are taking part in the Euro Champion Cup. <laughs> the <laughs> 2021 <Cup Champion> game. <laughs> it's going to be one of the years that the Euros have been taking place. Okay. And the subject's just going to be the random subject. Topic. That's our usual list. A random topic. Okay. All so right. let's, are we going to have to twiddle the does later a bit, aren't we? We're gonna, yeah, <laughs> I'll do that now. Okay, we're good to go. So we're going to do so one roll each, essentially one derslate each. Yeah, that's right. So we're going to do you first. Okay, go for it. And your country is Germany. Oh, that feels like a win. 
That's a pretty good team to get right now. <laughs> yeah. So Germany. Okay. Um, and the year is 1964. 64. Okay. I don't know really. No, no idea. That, well, so that's, that's okay. the benefit Good. of doing this. Yeah. <laughs> and the subject is business. Business? Business, business, business. 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 Let's do some more business. Germany, 1964 and business. All oh, right. I'll okay. do business. So... There you go. That's right. yours. So, so let me do yours. All right. Give me the does later. All right. There you go. Your country is? Yes. Denmark. Uh, okay. Fine. I don't know if that's good. That's a... That's a it's fine. Solid. Denmark. Yeah. I mean, they're all European, aren't they? So they're always going to be reasonably well Solid. documented. All right. Okay. Are you ready for your year? I am. And your year is? Uh-huh. 2008. Okay, that's nice. That, I like that. That feels like it will have a lot of interneted information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Than old information. I love it. Okay. okay. Are you ready for your topic? Yes. Be football, be football, be football. Okay. Yeah. I, I, this might be good. I'm not sure. Okay. Your topic is? Yeah. Blue. Okay. Denmark has famously not got blue in any of it. Has it not? Shirts. Or, it's red and white. <laughs> Well, you're going to have to figure out how to work blue into your topic. Okay. I, I can't help but feel like that blue is one of those like really wildy card things where you could just stumble upon something that makes everything really straightforward or mm. you are doomed. I'm not sure which one it Do is. Do you remember the year 2008? That was when UEFA introduced the blue card to send off a player. <laughs> Do you remember that? And all the, the Denmark players got sent out. off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's football time. I don't know anything about football. Is that going to be a problem? This is going to confuse half of our audience is American. So get get your soccer game in gear. Okay, get your cleats on. (laughs) (laughs) And watch Ted Lasso. Right. Well, that's it for this week's podcast. Uh, So thanks for listening uh, to today's episode. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that we've talked about on this podcast or on any of our others, you can get in touch with us at hhepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can go and click on the little contact button on hhepodcast.com. And, uh, you know, and if we do hear from you, we'll, we'll probably mention you. We will. We'll probably say, hey. Thanks. Thanks. Listener. Yeah, that's probably what we'll say. Okay, so that is our show for this week. So thank you very much for listening. Um, If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about on this episode, uh, or in fact, on any of our previous episodes, you can email us at hhepodcast at gmail.com or through any of our social media, or you can click on the contact button at hhepodcast.com. You know, we'd really like to hear from you. And you never know, if you get in touch, you might get featured on a future show like... G, the BMX God. But G, the BMX God says, can't wait to see what you'll have in store for the future. Oh, good stuff. So one way to definitely feature on a future show is to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It's really helpful for us. It helps other people discover the show. Um, you can also find us on all of the main social media under at HHE Podcast. Uh, and when you follow us, you'll start to receive a bit of history happened everywhere almost every single day. Right. So we're going to be back again very soon with our football special episode. But in the meantime, do look out for... The verdict. <laughs> it is our after show podcast. I mean, you know this already. I don't even know why I'm saying this. Of course, everyone knows who Paul Dursley is. Famous. He is our wit 
Our brain, he is H-H-E's raconteur. He is our critic, <laughs> judge, jury, executioner, all wrapped up in one bubbly little ball of fun. Cuddly British chap. He's so <laughs> cuddly. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to be so mad. You've just killed my hope of getting a good grade. <laughs> yeah. And don't forget, you can also go back and listen to our growing archive of old shows. That's on YouTube or on podcast platforms and at our website which is hhepodcast.com that's right so that means all that's left to say is you've been listening to history happened everywhere Um, uh, Congo. Oh, morning, Congo. M- morning, Congo. Look, uh, I've got some more of your post. My post? Yeah, you know, it seems the postman's got us confused again. <laughs> really? Yeah, you know, because we're both called Congo. Oh, right. Well, I mean, I don't know what's wrong. It's not that confusing. Isn't it, though? I mean, we're both called Congo. Yeah, but I'm the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and you are the Republic of the Congo. I mean, that's pretty clear to me. I mean, yeah, but on that, I I am democratic as well, you know. Well... I mean, you calling yourself that, it makes people think that we're not. Yeah, and that's why we put it in our name. (laughs) There's no confusion here. But but there is some... Look, look, I'm just saying that this never used to happen when you were called Zaya. Well, I'm not seeing a problem. Well, have you been receiving any of my posts? No. Are you sure? It's just that I've been expecting a, a rather large check from the World Bank. Oh, really? Um, no. No, nothing received here. Ah, and you're sure? Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, what with our names being so similar, I could see how you might accidentally get a check in our name, think it's for you, and maybe even cash it accidentally. What? I mean, it, no. it, it would be a straightforward mistake. Obviously, it could happen to any country, but we really could use that money, you see. Well, no, uh, nothing here. Um, have you tried speaking to Nigeria, uh, Cameroon or Angola? No, no, not yet. I just, I just thought I'd check with you first. Oh, <laughs> oh right. I see. Well, well, no, no, no. I mean, I mean, I'm not accusing you, obviously. No, 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 no. I understand. Look, it's just that you know our names are so similar, and you did have that new royal palace built. I look, I just wondered. What are you saying? Look, it's just that I've spoken to the World Bank, and they said it could be fraud. And when they find whoever did it, Congo, they'd be coming down on them. And these are their words: hard. Oh, r- right. Still, there's nothing for you to worry about, eh? No, no. <laughs> No, no, not at all. Okay, well, cheerio then. Bye then. Hey, hey, Angola! Do you want to buy a royal palace? 